Welcome to Have You Heard, an IDF podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. One of the most difficult parts of living with PI is navigating the complications and nuances of healthcare. On this episode of Have You Heard, Colleen Brock and Stephanie Steele presents a forum on the ways individuals with PI can navigate access to quality care. Let's get started. I thank all of you for attending, and I hope that you have um, a lot of things that you can take away this evening. Information from your diagnosis, to talking to your physicians, to getting your family and friends involved in your care. Because in the end, quality care equals quality of life, and that is the goal. So we're gonna get started. What is quality care? The degree to which health services for individuals and populations increase the likelihood of desired health outcomes. Quality health services should be effective, providing evidence-based healthcare services to those who need them, safe, avoiding harm to people for whom the care is intended, and people-centered, providing care that responds to individual preferences, needs, and values. This comes from the World Health Organization, and I think truly speaks to the root of quality care. And it begins with you. You are your best advocate. You know your body the best. You know your health the best. Therefore, it all starts with you. And the first step is understanding your rights. What are you entitled to as you go through this journey? One of the issue or one of your rights is medical information. You are entitled to know what is in your chart, what the plans are, anything medical related, you have that right to know. You have the right to a choice of healthcare provider. You have the right to be involved in all healthcare decisions, fair treatment and non-discrimination, privacy and protection, and last but not least, the ability to have a grievance and have it addressed. IDF has a bill of rights that you can download on the website and you can use that to move forward in your journey. The next thing is to understand your diagnosis. So what are primary immunodeficiencies? They are also known as inborn errors of immunity. And you're starting to see and hear that term used more often. And the reason for this is that sometimes it is not a deficiency, but the immune system is overactive. So inborn errors of immunity is becoming a bigger umbrella to encompass everything. And it is a group of more than 450 rare chronic conditions in which part of the body's immune system is missing or does not function correctly. 
This is different from autoimmune disorders, which is where your body's immune system attacks your own body, thinking it's a foreign object or something that does not belong there. Primary immunodeficiencies are caused by hereditary genetic defects and can affect anyone, regardless of age, gender, or ethnicity. I have talked to people who have been diagnosed in their 90s, and we know that babies can be born with them and all the way in between. What are the signs? What do you look for? What, when do you start to suspect? So for those of you attending who may not be diagnosed yet and maybe in that journey of, is there something wrong? Some of the things that you look for are severe, persistent, unusual, or recurrent infections. So we've all heard of strep throat, but having a strep infection in a different part of the body, say it's in your sinuses, or you have a different organism that is usually in a body part, a GI related illness that shows up somewhere else that's kind of strange. Those are some of the things that are a light bulb and should be a light bulb that there's something not quite right here and we need to do a little more investigating. I heard a physician one time at a meeting that I attended who said, everybody's allowed one pneumonia in life. You get a freebie. Two of them, you're on my radar. Two is a little suspicious. Three, you're going to the immunologist. And the reason for that is having pneumonia, especially if you're hospitalized with it over and over and over again, is not normal. And it is another light bulb moment. Something is going on and you need to look a little deeper. The other thing to think about is, does something run in the family? And that is another reason to have somebody's immune system looked into a little bit further. So let's say you're the one who has been diagnosed and you have a certain immune disorder and you start to hear that your cousin's child is sick all the time, or they're, they're having problems, or maybe it's a nephew or an uncle, anybody. Those are the ones that you need to have the discussion with and say, so I've been diagnosed. This is what I have. And this is why I think it's worth having your child or yourself looked into and see if your immune system is functioning. Now, having said that, just because you have an immune disorder does not mean anybody else in your family has to have it. You can be the only one. And it does not necessarily mean that your children will have it. It is very random unless it is a specific genetic cause. So something like XLA, which is X-linked to that chromosome, is hereditary. We know it and we know what to look for. So if you have a boy or even if you have a girl, if you've got that in the family, you're going to want to have your relatives checked. If you have CBID, it does not necessarily mean that you are going to have it in the family. Most of you know, and some of you may not, two of our children have CVID. And I also was diagnosed about 10 years ago now. We went through genetic testing. None of us have a genetic component that is similar. 
I was shocked. I would have lost the bank. I would have bet at least my kids were related somehow genetic genetically. They aren't. So that just kind of goes to show you that even though you have it, and maybe somebody else does too, doesn't necessarily mean there's a genetic component yet. Genetics is in its infancy. So maybe at some point we'll know, but right now it doesn't necessarily have to come up. So important information to know. What is your diagnosis? Make sure you know and understand the name of it. If your physician tells you what the name of it is, write it down. If you don't understand as they explain it, ask them again. Look it up and make sure you understand what the name of it is. Then you need to have down who made that diagnosis. When was it made based on what data? And that data is going to be your lab work and it's going to be your illness history. Used to be the physicians only looked at lab work. Now they look at how many infections do you have? How many rounds of antibiotics does it take to go get rid of that infection? How often are you having infections? All those kinds of things are what matter in your diagnosis. All of this information is going to help you manage your treatment for your diagnosis, but more than anything, it's going to help you with insurance. And I will tell you, please put it somewhere that is very safe. I often tell people, put it in a safety deposit box if you have it, put it in a fireproof box. It is that important. You could be diagnosed for 30 years and all of a sudden they reject you and say, nope, you, you don't need treatment anymore. And you're going, did I just wake up healthy this morning? Like, what's the deal? If you have that paperwork, odds are you're gonna have approval for your treatment either that day or the next. That's how important that is. So make sure you have it. What are your treatment options? Your treatment options depend on your diagnosis. So some treatment options are antibiotic therapy, antifungal therapy, gamma interferon, gene therapy. You could have granulocyte colony stimulating factors, stem cell transplant, a bone marrow transplant, PEG-88 enzyme therapy, or the most common for most people is immunoglobulin replacement therapy. Now, when it comes to Ig replacement therapy, you have options. You could have subcutaneous infusions, you could have facilitated subcutaneous infusions, or you can have IV infusions. You need to work with your healthcare provider to decide what is best for you. It is a medical decision based on whether you can handle the peaks and troughs that you get with IVIG or whether you need to have sort of a constant level in your system as you do with subcutaneous. But it's also a lifestyle choice. If you're choosing IV, you can either have it at an infusion center or you can have it at home. And you have a nurse that is responsible for everything. The nurse comes in, or if you're at infusion center, you go to them, but they're responsible for all of your supplies. They're responsible for everything that is required to get that infusion done. 
subcutaneous, it comes to you when you are in control. You can decide when you want to have it, where you want to do it, when you want to do it, that kind of thing. So it's something that you need to work together with your healthcare provider. But I strongly encourage you to not be pressured into one way or another. Hear them out, listen to what they have to say, and see if you can come to an understanding of what you prefer. Know that at any point, you can change your method of administration. So if you choose one that you find is not working, it's not what you thought it would be, you can change. The other thing is when we talk about lifestyle, sometimes kids who enter college prefer to stop doing it via IV and go to sub-Q or some prefer to stop sub-Q and go to IV. And that's perfectly fine. And then when they're finished with college, they can change back or they can stay on whatever it is they've, they've chosen to do. So again, with IG replacement therapy, just like with diagnosis, there are certain things you need to know. You need to know the product name and the company that makes it. You need to know that company's name because a lot of them have patient assistance programs. So you can get in touch with them via the web and phone numbers, call them, email them, ask them about their copay assistance programs, and they will be able to help you. You need to know the amount that you're getting, how often, and the rate. And not just the ending rate, write down what you start at and what you finish at, especially with IV because you tend to start much slower and then you increase at intervals until you hit your max. So however you're doing it, make sure you have all of those. If you have a new nurse, if you have to go to a new place, knowing that knowledge gives them the ability to keep your infusions the same. You, you don't want to change things and then all of a sudden have a reaction or not feel good or have a headache because you didn't know the right rate. You need to know the name and the dose of any and all pre and post infusion medications if you take any. So make sure you have all of that written down. So next we're going to talk about communicating with your health care team because this is very important. You are the general manager. Just like I said that you are in control. Well, you're the GM of the team. And just as an FYI, this picture is from 1948 and includes baseball players Roy Campanella and Jackie Robinson of the Brooklyn Dodgers with manager Leo DeRocher. And I'm not a baseball fan, so if I said a name wrong, I apologize. <laughs> So who are the members of the team now? You're, you're the leading team. Who, who are you leading? Well, you've got your family. You've got your friends, your doctors, your nurses. If you have a psychologist or a psychiatrist, your pharmacist, your social worker, your insurance company, your specialty pharmacy, all of these are members of that team. Most of those you're going to agree and you're going to go, okay, I, I understand. They're all important, but 
why do I need to have my pharmacist from my specialty pharmacy as part of my team? Well, they're a very important tool. They're the ones that have your medication and send all your supplies if you're getting it sub-Q. So they are on call 24 hours, seven days a week. They can help you understand potential side effects. They can tell you if there's a drug interaction. So let's say you've started a brand new medication and you're concerned, even though your doctor has told you it's fine, it's no big deal, but you're still just a little concerned, calling that specialty pharmacist and saying, hey, I've started this new medication. Is there anything I should look out when I get my infusions and, and look for? They can help you with dosing. They can help you with rates as far as how fast, how slow, if you're having problems. And they can tell you things to talk to your immunologist about or whoever's writing the prescription orders for your infusions. They can also help big time with the small changes needed with pre-meds, needle lengths, and other things that um, may be bothering you, especially with subcutaneous where you may be having needle reactions and skin reactions, they can help you. Keeping everyone on the same page. This can be complicated. And this is where being your general manager and the top dog is important. At every appointment, you want to have copies of everything. And you want to request those copies be sent to all of your doctors. You can have things done electronically. I encourage you to sign up for all the portals. Portals now have to have everything in them. So you can go in and pull your lab work. You can pull other information. And if you're not seeing something that you've had done and the results aren't there, ask where are they? Because you were entitled to see them. Just recently, I was having x-rays, and although I've been able to find all my blood work, I couldn't find my x-rays, and come to find out, you have to ask permission to see your x-ray results, and then you can have them. So that's exactly what I did, and now they're all there. So sometimes if you don't see something, just ask, why can I not see it? Because you are entitled, going back to that rights, you are entitled to see your medical records. If you find a discrepancy, tell them and tell them it needs to be changed and then go back into that portal and make sure it's changed. If it is not in the portal and they are still doing paper, then make sure that you see it in writing that it has been changed. Organization, there's a lot to keep organized. I encourage you to keep a notebook or a folder, however you best keep yourself organized. Keep a copy of those diagnosis papers and that those original lab results, but then you can divide it up. Doctor visits, you can put in illnesses and keep a record of when you're sick, what did you get treated with, how long, what were your symptoms and how long did it take to get over? The, um, you can use a calendar for writing things down. The biggest thing is saving things. Oftentimes what you'll see is a pattern. Maybe you'll notice that hmm, every August, I get a massive sinus infection that takes weeks to get over. 
And in talking to an ENT or talking to your PCP, you come to find out it's an allergy trigger. And so you then can prepare ahead of time. Ragweed is huge where I live in Pennsylvania in the fall. And you start to medicate in July before ragweed season, tend not to have as many sinus infections because you can kind of head it off at the pass knowing now what the biggest trigger is. Doesn't mean you're not gonna get one, but maybe it won't be as bad. So keeping copies allows you at the hospital to pull things up and be able to show the residents or the physicians who come in what you're talking about. And it just keeps things a little bit more organized. And I don't know about you, but me, if I'm organized, I'm a whole lot less stressed. And we already have enough to stress about in life as it is. We don't need to add this to it. Big exciting news. We finally have our emergency care card. Yeah, I'm so excited to announce this. The nurse advisory committee worked very hard on this. It is going to the printer. Keep an eye out in July. As soon as it is done and printed, you will either be able to um, send in a request to have a couple sent to you, or you can go online and print them off and then fill out the information that is where the um, blank boxes are. So I'm very excited about this. It is going to tell those in the emergency room or the urgent care places, first off, I am immunocompromised. And as we know, the one good thing that came from COVID is everybody understands what that means now and you no longer have to explain what that means. You're gonna be able to have what you have down there. You're gonna be able to have your contacts, primary care physician. We're gonna talk about this, but I encourage you to put the doctor you have chosen to kind of be your assistant manager. So the one who's going to know the most about your care doesn't necessarily need to be your immunologist. For most of us, it will be, but it's going to be the doctor who takes care of you the most often and who knows the most about the whole picture of your care. So if you are somebody who has multiple people, that's where that primary care physician is going to be very important. On the back of it, there are critical points for the ER doc to look at, to understand, it also has the IDF website, and there is a spot on the IDF website for clinicians where they can get more information, along with just the general pages that they can look up your certain diagnosis and read more about that if they are unaware of what it is. So I hope you are as excited as I am. And it's postcard size, so it's not gonna be real, real huge and it should be able to be folded even in half and put in your purse or wherever and, and kept. So Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, otherwise known as HIPAA. This is a federal law and it sets the rules for healthcare providers and health plans about who can look and receive your information. It ensures that you have rights over your health information, including the right to get your information, make sure it is correct, and know who has seen it. 
So this is a paper when you go in the doctor's office, they sort of always nonchalantly say, oh, do you know about HIPAA and here, sign this. It is very important to understand what you are signing. I also encourage you to make sure that at your doctor's offices, you are signing a piece of paper that says who has the right to see your medical records. And if you have a child who's over 18, they are legally an adult, you will not be able to see any of their records unless they give you permission. So if you have a child who is over 18, have a conversation with them. Does it, do they want it to be you? Do they want it to be dad? Do they want it to be somebody else? I mean, they're technically an adult now, it's their decision. But make sure when you're at the doctor's office that you are signing that paper and don't assume that this paper fills in for that one also. Here's an example of a HIPAA authorization form that I was talking about for family members and friends. So this is where you put exactly who can see your records and what records. You can also narrow it down to they can only see certain records, not all of them. But this is the form that you need to make sure that you are signing. So now we're going to move into the appointment. Are you ready? And that's the biggest thing to getting a good quality appointment. Time flies when you're in there. Everybody's in a rush. So we're going to try to make the best of that time that we have with them. So bring a list of questions and concerns. You want to have the most important ones at the top. Whatever concerns you the most is the first thing you want to talk about. You can write everything down. If you get lucky and you have time to talk about all of it, great. Don't assume that you're not going to have time. Assume that you're not going to have time. So the very first two or three questions, you want to make sure those are the most important ones. You want to talk to other members of your healthcare team, and you want them to talk to each other. And that can be a pickle. And... So one of the things that you want to do is talk to the physicians who are taking care of you. How do you talk to the other members of my healthcare team? Have them answer it. And don't go, oh, we'll talk. It's no big deal. No, I want to know how you, you have that conversation. Do you email? Do you talk to each other on the phone? How exactly do you work? with my other specialists and do you work with all of them or is it just one in particular how how does that conversation take place this is also where having that person who is your co-manager this is where it's important for them to understand because they need to be taking on the role of understanding all the pieces and that's something that can be a lot for a physician, depending upon how many people they take care of. And that's a good question to ask them because you are basically asking them to be your co-manager. And if they don't have time, if they're not willing, if they're not able for whatever reason, then you need to look at, okay, they're not going to work. Who's my second choice? You obviously can't force somebody to be your co-manager and you want somebody who wants to be part of your team, but ask them point blank. 
this is overwhelming to me. I need help. And are you willing to be that person who is the head of all of the physicians that are taking care of me? Can I have all of the notes from the various doctors be sent to them or you? And have you be able to answer questions if I get concerned? Where this comes into play is I'm at the rheumatologist, I'm getting treated, and I now have a GI bug. And so now there's three doctors who are taking care of me. And does any of that kind of interact or interfere with what is going on? And that's where they're going to have to get notes from both of them. And your immunologist, if, or if your immunologist is your manager, co-manager, then they can say, you're good to go. They're both, they're both doing exactly what I would do. And lastly, if you cannot find a physician, and this goes for any physician, if you are not comfortable, then it's time to get a second opinion. And there is never a problem with getting a second opinion. And in fact, I look at it as if you have a physician or a clinician, a nurse practitioner, a PA, whoever, who does not want you to get a second opinion, who is not supportive of a second opinion, I would give serious thought to getting a new doctor because that is a situation where my first question is, why not? That is a red flag to me. You should have a doctor who is more than willing and wants you to get a second opinion, especially if you have something serious going on, even a third opinion. Different people look at the same situation in different ways. And so getting those different opinions, sometimes somebody's got a really good answer that maybe wasn't the first one that came up. So it's something to definitely consider. So during the appointment, take notes. And if you can't take notes, ask if you can record. Take somebody with you. If you don't understand what they're saying, tell them flat out. I'm sorry, I'm confused. I, I still don't understand. Can you, can you explain it again? If you don't understand parts of it, tell them you don't understand that part, ask questions that you are entitled to understand everything they said. Consider bringing somebody with you. I especially encourage this if you are beginning your journey or you're facing a big change. So if some, you've been diagnosed with cancer, you've been diagnosed with a GI bug you, that's serious, you're facing a surgery of some kind, whether it's orthopedic or whatever. But if you've got something that you may not comprehend because you're just kind of overwhelmed by the whole event, take somebody with you. That way you can say to them, okay, this is what I heard and understood. Is that what you understood them as to saying? And have a conversation. And that person can also be somebody that can take notes for you. And like I said, if you, if you have no one to go with you, ask, and you always need to ask if you can record it. And most physicians have no problem with that. Signs that there's a problem because communication is big. You don't feel like you're part of your care team. It's your team. Sorry. You're not 
kind of where I expect you to be in this game. You're not doing the job I expect and want. I need to replace you. And that's where that team member is excused and the new guy comes in or the new girl comes in. Healthcare team members aren't open to discussing your questions, concerns, or problems. That's not going to work. Not going to work. They need to hear you. They need to listen and they need to explain. They don't need to belittle. They don't need to tell you you're a head case. They don't need to make fun of you or to dismiss your concerns. Your concerns are legit until you understand maybe that they're not, or you find out that guess what folks, I was right and this is what's wrong. So you need somebody who's going to really listen and hear what you're saying and answer and ease your mind. If you're leaving the appointment and they haven't answered your questions or you don't have enough information, again, that's not the right person for you. And there's nothing wrong with walking away and saying, sorry, that's just not gonna work. And having people on your team is vital. And having ones who will interact with each other, having ones that will interact with you and will be supportive and understanding of you, even if you disagree, being able to work out a disagreement, say your doctor wants to do one thing and you don't, well, have your reasons as to why not, listen to their reasons as to why, and see if you can come to an understanding that, okay, Let's meet in the middle and see if we can do this. But in the end, unless there's a really strong medical reason for their decision, you're the one in charge. It's your body. It is you're in control. It is you that is going to make that determination in the end of what to do. So next step, speak up regarding the specific communication issue. Talk to other members of your healthcare team and again, seek a second opinion. So I think the biggest thing and to understand is communication is huge. And I would also say that when you're talking to them, especially if you're in a situation where you're not seeing eye to eye, the best and the way I find is most successful is to kind of come at it with, I understand what you're saying. And I understand that this is not what you prefer, but this is what I prefer. And this is what I feel most comfortable with. So how can we meet in the middle? Can we meet in the middle? And instead of going in going, I want this, I don't care what you say, but kind of coming at it with, I hear you, but, and going from there. So that's, that's my recommendation, especially if you're in a situation where they're not listening. And, and there's nothing wrong with being frank. You can be kind and frank at the same time. You don't hear what I'm saying. You're not listening. At least that's how I feel. You know, you're not being aggressive. You're not listening. I feel 
like you're not taking my complaints, my concerns about how I feel seriously. I don't feel good. I know that this is not right. I want to be tested. And, you know, approaching it in that manner oftentimes will get you the best results. I can't promise it for everybody, but hopefully it will work. The other thing to keep in mind is sometimes we just don't click. Just like with friends, there are people you meet that you click with and it's like you've known them all your life. There are other people that you're just sort of friendly with, but you're not really friends. And there are other people that just rub you the wrong way. That doesn't make them a bad doctor. And so what is right for one person and who's fabulous may or may not be right for you. And that's okay. The best thing to do is find the team that is going to have the best results for you. As you can probably tell, we at IDF believe strongly that individuals with PI should have the tools they need to access quality care on their PI journey. As such, we believe that PI patients and their families have certain rights that they should be aware of. In 2009, the IDF Nurse Advisory Committee created a Primary Immunodeficiency Bill of Rights, which is continuously updated to this day. It contains the essential requirements for a person with PI to be treated with dignity, respect, and autonomy while navigating the complicated landscape of diagnosis and treatment. The PI Bill of Rights includes non-discrimination, choice of provider, involvement in decision-making, and much more. To read and download the PI Bill of Rights, visit primaryimmune.org slash billofrights, or click the link in the show's description. So, questions to ask when seeking a healthcare provider. Do you accept my insurance? <laughs> that is the biggest question. You want somebody who takes your insurance. Do you diagnose and treat patients with primary immunodeficiencies? There's, you can also ask them if they say yes, how many? Now, oftentimes you're gonna be asking this of the front desk person and they may or may not know. And you can ask them, I have, IgA deficiency, can you please ask how many people in the practice have this diagnosis and call me back and let me know. There's nothing wrong with asking that. You're not asking for personal information. You're just asking for a rough estimate so that it kind of gives you an idea of how many people this physician is treating. How many patients with PI do you treat at your facility? Again, it's an overall general statement. So if you haven't been diagnosed yet, that's a great question to ask because you don't have a specific diagnosis to ask. For those receiving IG replacement therapy, you wanna ask the physician or possibly the PA or the nurse practitioner or the front desk person, do you prescribe both IVIG and sub-Q? Do you prescribe more than one brand? There are many to choose from. Do you offer patients receiving IVIG the option of receiving their infusion in a medical or a home setting? Sometimes that is not determined by the physician. Sometimes it is determined by your insurance company, but most of the time it is a choice. 
And there again, it's a lifestyle choice as to whether you do it at home or you do it in an infusion center or a hospital setting. It depends on where you live as to what your options are. Um, I can tell you children can do it at home. My kids have done it since they were little, little, little. And um, so doing it at home is a nice option, but for some, they don't like it or it's just where they live is not conducive to doing it at home. Information to know when seeking a new provider. Provide permission via a release form for your current medical records to be sent to the new provider. If you don't have a copy of your current medical records, request a copy for yourself also. And this is where hopefully, if you've recently been diagnosed, you can access those and you can have them. I will also say, do not, do not rely on the place that you are at, the doctor's office, the hospital, a portal of any kind to maintain your records. Certain records after a certain period of time will be eliminated. And that depends on the facility. And so one facility may do it one way, some may do it another. By law, they have to hold them for a certain period of time. But if you were diagnosed 40, 50 years ago and you have no records, good luck because they're gonna be somewhere underground in, in a vault if they have not already been purged. So um, if you don't have your records, then get a copy of whatever you can now and keep those. And that's where that folder, that binder comes in. Some healthcare, um, healthcare personnel might request your medical records before accepting you as a new patient. A lot of physicians like to read over, so they kind of have a beginning understanding of what you have and what you've gone through prior to seeing you. And this is a good thing because you can have a better conversation than handing them to them when you get there and they don't have a clue. They have no idea what you have been through. If you're newly diagnosed, seeking a diagnosis, it's not as bad. But if you're somebody who's been diagnosed for 20, 30 years, your immunologist has all of a sudden passed away or they're died, they, I'm sorry, they have um, moved, retired, and you're, you're seeing somebody new, then you're starting all over. So having records is a really good way ahead of time to kind of get to know you, and then you can have a smoother transition. Last but not least, know your resources. There are so many that can help you to get great quality of care. And one of those is us. So we have several ways in which we can help you. You can go to the IDF website, all the information, the materials are free. You can have a request for materials to be sent to you, or you can have them downloaded and you can just print them out yourself. One of the things that we have is the IDF Clinician Finder. Uh, it is a button that says find a clinician at the top right on the website. And it is an online tool 
that provides access for specialists. So how this works is you can go in and you can put in your miles and you can put in what kind of specialist you're trying to find and then put in your information, fill it all out and then hit enter. And whatever, say you're looking for immunologists, all the immunologists within that range that you have put up, say 50 miles, will come up. And then you can go through them and you can see who is available. You can call and ask those questions that we talked about. Do you take my insurance? All of that kind of stuff. These clinicians that are in the finder are all voluntary. So they have sent in their name and all their information to us then, and that they understand, treat or manage patients that have PI. We do not verify these reports and we know that you might find an error, things change. And the last thing a physician thinks about is sending us the correction. So if you come across a problem, there is something that will tell you, hey, heads up, you can, there, there's a problem. This person is retired, this person moved. You send that information to us, I then get it. And I take care of finding out um, what happened, where they went, whatever, or I fix it. Um, it's not a referral. And IDF does not recommend one physician or clinician of, of any kind or medical facility over another. A lot of people ask us, who do you recommend? We remain very neutral. And that is something that we have a very strong belief in that, as I said earlier, what is perfect for one person might not be for another. So we are not here to say this physician is phenomenal and this one is horrible. We are never gonna say that. These are all great doctors. They want to be involved with IDF, which is why they're in there. And you can make it a better finder by helping us get more doctors into it. So one of the things this year that we are really, really working on, and it's gonna occur even more next year as we're getting more and more materials to address the non-immunology world. Most of us have specialists outside of immunology. They're not in the finder. I will apologize, we, we've tried, we are trying, but we have taken it on very seriously now that we have quite a fair amount of all the immunologists in the country. Don't have them all by any means, but we have a lot everywhere, Alaska and Hawaii included. We're working on the other specialists. So if you see other specialists and you like them and they treat your condition and you think they would make a fabulous doctor for another person in your area looking for one. Give them this site and ask them to create an account on the IDF website and go into the clinician find, go into the clinician finder. And then I add them. They fill out a special form and I add them in. And then the next time you've helped somebody because they're if you're searching a pulmonologist. And, and you've given me the name of somebody, then they will appear. So that's a great way for you to help us grow this because I think this is a tremendous resource in looking for clinicians all over the United States. Skid Compass. So if you fall into the family of having a child with Skid, 
this is a fantastic resource. There are videos, there are materials, there are all kinds of things available for this diagnosis. So I encourage you to, again, get the clinicians involved that you see or your child sees, get them into that clinician finder so other families have access to them and get them involved in IDF. IDF Consulting Immunologist Program. This is a program that was created as a second opinion for clinicians. So they can reach out. What happens is they reach out with your information. They send it in. There are certain fields they have to fill out. I receive it and I give it to a member of our consulting panel. That person who's the, the ones we have are some of the top immunologists in the country they then respond to your physician directly. So they can go back and forth, back and forth. It is a wonderful way to get a second set of eyes, a second set of thoughts, just kind of that one more little step. And this is especially useful for those physicians who are not as familiar with PI as other physicians may be. So it could be your pediatrician, it could be your pulmonologist, it can be any physician or clinician who wants a second opinion, a second set of what do I do? Is this what I'm thinking? Am I on the right track? The thing you have to remember is this is for physicians only. So if you are concerned that your physician is stumped, if your physician admits, they're stumped. Give them this website and it's, and it's on the IDF website. Give them this link and have them contact us and we will be happy to help them. But you need to remember that if you try to submit it, I'm going to have to send you a note that says, sorry, this is only for clinicians because that clinician who's going to answer is going to answer in clinician to clinician language. And so that that's how that program is set up. Publications galore. We have them for everything from a school guide to the zebra tail. We have them in English and we have a fair amount of them in Spanish with more coming. So check out all the publications. You can have them sent to you or you can download whatever parts you wanna download. Oftentimes you might have a physician who takes the patient family handbook, copies the um, chapter that your diagnosis is about and gives that to you at your appointment. Or you can go in, copy your chapter and give it to your teachers at school for your child. Give it to your college professors if you're in college. Give it to your specialists. So everybody is learning because as we all know from day one, we are the educators. We are the ones who have to educate our physicians. And the more we educate them, the more of them are gonna know and the better care everybody's gonna get. IG Therapy Guide. This is a great tool. Tells you how it's made, why it's safe and both methods of administration. So any question you have about IG therapy, this is a great book to read and it's 
it has a wealth of information about how to make that choice. And we have Ask IDF. And we will ask, or sorry, we will answer any question. Um, the biggest thing that I will encourage is that when you submit your question, make sure that your question is complete so that we understand exactly what you're needing help with and um, what the question pertains to. And then, and no question is stupid. We are here to help you understand any part of your journey from insurance to finding a physician. We can give you a list if you're having trouble with the find a clinician, um, anything. And we, we are here for you. I'm Stephanie Steele. Colleen, thank you for that wonderful presentation. And thank you all for your questions. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, my physician is retiring and I'm looking for a provider in my area. Can you tell me the different types of physicians that treat individuals with immune deficiencies and prescribe IG therapy? So the first type that you're going to look for is a clinical immunologist or an immunologist. And in looking in that area, you need to be very careful. Allergy immunology is the same board certification. And some doctors treat more allergy than they treat immunology, and some treat more immunology than they treat allergy. So oftentimes you're going to see somebody's name and they're going to say they're an allergist immunologist that does not tell you which they do. So one of the questions you're going to want to know when you're looking at doctors is which patient do you see more of? And you're going to want to choose the one who treats more immunology than they do allergy. Not to say that they can't do both, but you want the one who treats more immunology. So, or you're going to have a clinical immunologist and the difference between a clinical immunologist and an immunologist is going to be clinical immunologists for the most part, that is their specialty. That is all they do. So that is going to be the top choices. The second and third most common that people see oftentimes are an oncologist or they might see an infectious disease doc. And that's because they may be the doctors who discovered the problem and they just stay with them. Thank you. Mm -hmm. My physician recently retired and I have a new immunologist. This physician approaches treatment differently than my previous physician. Can you give me advice on how to adjust to the new treatment? Well, one of the first things is just to kind of take a deep breath and to understand that they're new and they're not the same person. And it's very hard because you have built a relationship and bonded with that person that you had, especially if you've had them for a long time. It's very, very hard to cut the cord from somebody who has known you and knows all the little things. And oftentimes it's those little things that really kind of become big things if you don't know the person. So take a deep breath, understand that there's a learning curve, that they need to get to know you 
just like you need to get to know them. If there is a big difference in the way they are treating you versus your old physician, then I would address it and address it kindly. And an example would be, I understand when Dr. X took care of me that this is how we did, say the person has multiple sinus infections uh, or a sinus infection and Dr. X automatically did a 21 day supply of medication. And this doctor prefers to do seven days or 14 days, and then you end up having to call back. And so if something like that is happening, it's reiterating what did work in the past. So I don't know exactly what the problem is, but understand that there is gonna be a time period where there's a learning curve. And sometimes you kind of have to help that learning curve with giving them what you know has worked in the past. If it's a personality problem and you're just not comfortable, then it might be time to find another doctor. I do not say find another doctor easy because there are certain places where that is easier to do than others. And so I'm not flippant when I say, oh, just go get another doctor. Because for some that might be very easy to do. If you live in the middle of nowhere, that's gonna be really hard to do. So sometimes it's kind of understanding that, okay, we're not gonna be the best of friends and we're not gonna be the best team that we were when Dr. X was with me, but is it doable? And that's always the question to ask, is it doable? If it's not doable, then it is, you're gonna have to find somebody else but there's gonna be a learning curve. During your presentation, you spoke about finding a, choosing a physician that would be our co-manager. Mm -hmm. I have a rheumatologist, a pulmonologist, primary care physician, and my immunologist. Would you say that one is better than another to be my co-manager? Or what are your thoughts on that, Colleen? I would say the person to manage your care is the person you have the best relationship with and have the most trust in, who that you can trust to get that information from everybody, read the information to stay up on what is going on with you. So it's not a pulmonologist is better than an immunologist is better than whatever. It is the person that you trust the most and have the best relationship with. And that is who I personally feel should be your manager. And that's where I said, sometimes it's not the immunologist and sometimes it is. It just sort of depends on how close they are to you, how, I mean, some people, their immunologist is four hours away, but their PCP is 30 minutes or 10 minutes. So if you see your PCP more often, it would make more sense for it to be your PCP. But if your PCP doesn't quite have the same relationship that you would like as you do with your immunologist, then it can be your immunologist. Thank you. Would you say that there are key pieces of information that need to be included for a hospital visit or an ER? 
um, plan of care for individuals um, that have immune deficiencies. That's where that emergency card is going to be so <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, I'm just a little excited. <laughs> and having that card, if you have a specific diagnosis, copying that chapter, but understand that if you are in the ER, most of the time, they're not going to care about your PI because your PI is not probably what brought you there. It is going to be, you're having a heart attack, you've broken a bone, you're having a stroke, um, you have COVID, you have, you know, whatever, you're going to be there for an urgent visit. So you want to remember to have the most important things that somebody would need to know in an emergency situation. So that's going to be your allergies, your medications. You're going to have the contact name and number on your um, card and you can write some of those things down. There's not going to be enough space for everything, especially if you're on a lot of medications or you have a lot of um, other existing problems, but having somebody else also have that information. So I often encourage people write down the medications you're on, your major diagnoses and your allergies on a piece of paper, have your spouse have somebody who has a pretty high chance of being the one to, to go with you, take a picture of it and have it on their phone so that they can show it to the doctor. If, especially if you're in a different state and something happens and they don't have your records, they're not, they're not used to you. The nice thing about electronic records now is it really doesn't matter where you are. They, they can get access to things long-term your PI will come into play. Where it comes into play in the short term is if it is infectious related, that is where the treatment end will, um, that's where that will be determined. And that's where you can talk to them, say they wanna give you amoxicillin and you know Sefton works every single time. That's where you're going to have to say, sorry, I understand what you're saying, but from experience, it isn't going to do anything and I'm going to be sicker and can we just do soften? So kind of having that knowledge um, is having what you would need in an emergency, especially allergies. For me, I'm allergic to CT dye. They're going to have more problems than I came in with if they do a CT scan and give me dye. So it's, it's those kind of things that are going to be the most important thing to have. Speaking of these emergency cards, how do we get our hands on these? So all you're going to have to do is go to the website and there's going to be an announcement and probably a blog post um, done look middle of July-ish. Like I said, they've gone to the printer, so they're going to be available through the mail. So you can request to have them mailed and I would request a couple just so you can have one. Your emergency contact person will have one just have a spare, but you can also uh, download them and you can print them off right away. Would you say that medical alert bracelets are still helpful? No, no. I've talked to physicians and I've talked to uh, emergency techs in the ambulance and they 
they say they they hardly ever look at them. The if you're going to do one, what they need to know are again the things you need to know if you're unconscious. So it's going to be a major allergy, or if you have a heart problem, you have a stent, something, uh, you're on blood thinners, something that's going to alert them that there might be a different problem going on that you can't see. So like I said, with the CT dye, I do have one and that is what it's for. So I guess I shouldn't say they don't matter. They, they do, but having your immune disorder on them or having one because you have an immune disorder is not relative. It, it's not gonna come into play in an emergency situation. So if you're going to have one, you're gonna have one because you have a severe allergy to something they may do like the CAT scan dye or you're on a medication like a blood thinner where you may look fine and you're bleeding internally big time. So those are the things that you would want to put on it. Good to know. Could you help us some advice on how to help me speak more like an advocate as opposed to coming across as aggressive with office staff or physicians? The biggest thing is to be nice. Kill them with kindness. <laughs> um, Laughing, joking. I know you're really, really busy, but I have a quick question. I understand that they are overwhelmed. They are busy and they answer the phone all day long. So depending upon why you're calling, let's say you're calling because you need to set up an appointment for the very first time and you want to ask some of those questions. I know you're really, really busy, but I have a couple questions because I would like to set up an appointment with one of your doctors could you answer a couple of questions? Or if I give you the couple of questions, could you answer them and call me back later? Like giving them, acknowledging that they are super busy, but yet you need help. Or kidding around and saying, okay, I know this is probably a stupid question, but, and you usually get a laugh, always answering with, Thank you so much for helping me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Have a good day. Trust me, they're going to remember you. So when you call back and this time you have a question that's a little more aggressive, you're a little irritated, and sometimes, you know, even saying, I'm sorry, I'm really irritated right now. And I know you're super busy, but I have a question you know, acknowledging that you're upset. It's okay. It's okay to say, I'm, I'm angry and here's why. And I know it's not your fault, but so you're kind of having a conversation and addressing that you are mad about something that has happened, but yet you're not attacking them because odds are they had nothing to do with it, but they're the gatekeeper. So you gotta, you gotta be nice. <laughs> So it seems hard to get immunologists to treat or consider symptoms that could be complications, such as autoimmune issues. Um, so do I push my immunologist on these issues or do I push my primary care physician? Well, again, it's going to be who's your co-manager. If it is your immunologist who's your co-manager, then I have a little bit of concern if they're not listening. Um, 
either way, if it's your PCP and they're not listening, you need to have that co-manager that you can go to and say, I've noticed this. This is really concerning me. Who do I need to see? And, and letting it go from there. But it is, if you're not being paid attention to, or they're downplaying your symptoms or your concerns, then you need to ask somebody else. At what point does a physician decide to start therapy? That's going to depend on your diagnosis. And I would assume they're saying um, IG replacement therapy, and that's going to depend on numbers. So, and, and function, you're going to go through the testing process, which starts with having your numbers drawn for your IgA, M, G, and E, depending upon what those numbers are, you go to step two, which is function. So you're going to have the vaccine challenge. If you fail the vaccine challenge and your numbers are low and you have a history of being sick, then odds are they're going to start talking about therapy. Because it's not just, it's, it's very interesting. You can have some people who have very low numbers, not extremely low, but lower than normal. And yet they rarely get sick. And you can have people who have numbers that are low-ish and they're sick all the time. And so you have to look at both things. Would you say there's a, um, what is the best way of communicating electronically with my provider? Through the portal. A lot of, a lot of clinicians now like it. It's faster. You don't have to go through the gatekeeper. You don't have to leave a message. It doesn't get sent to the physician or whoever you're trying to find. And it's written documentation. And I like anything that I can say, mm, I disagree because here it is in writing. And they are encrypted, so you don't have to worry about security. So I present as a healthy young person. Any advice on how to advocate for myself when physician doesn't take my symptoms seriously? That's when you have to say, I have concerns. And I don't think, so, I think something is not right. And, you know, whatever it is, you talk that out and you ask them point blank, what are we going to do to figure this out? Because we all look good. We've all heard a million times. And it's nice to be told that you look good, but we're broken on the inside. And sometimes things start to not feel good or sometimes things start to appear. You may have a rash that's unexplained. You may have, you know, bones that are starting to just not look quite right. And you have arthritis and, or you have joint pain and it came out of nowhere. So you need to kindly push back. And the, again, there's nothing wrong with saying, I've told you how I feel, but I feel like you're not taking me seriously. And if they're not, and you've tried, then that physician is not going to be the physician for you. 
with that, I just want to say thank you all for joining us this evening. We hope to see you again at another IDF event, whether that's a lunch and learn, a forum, the teen escape, or not until uh, later this year at the IDF conference. Um, so thank you all and have a really great evening. Take care. Thanks everyone for being here. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically and leave us a review on iTunes so that others may discover this podcast as well. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org or click the link in the show's description. For more information on how to get engaged in advocacy on behalf of the PI community, check out IDF's Patient Advocacy Engagement Toolkit at www.primaryimmune.org slash patient-engagement-toolkit. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at idf at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.